welcome to the 30-second fireside chat. And we're happy to be here. We're just back from the Cultural Connection Tour. Um, still getting over some jet lag, but very happy to be back. And thank you to everyone in all of the countries we visited. You were superb in Auckland. It was Nick and Sean in Sydney. There was Michael, Darren, and Natalia in New Delhi, Devendra in Frankfurt, of course, Oliver, our own Oliver here, Fouad and Boris. Um, in New York, we had Nella and Mercedes and Elliot. We thank you all. Thank you to Rocketman Pictures, Max, Kurt, um, Max Chase, and Reto, sorry. Um, and they are the documentary filmmakers for the documentary Tom is going to be in called Love Man. And we would, Tom, we would like to extend our condolences to you and Pamela on the passing of the last surviving critter mentioned in the MBT trilogy, and that is Sir Maximus the Catamus. <laughs> so yep. we're sorry about that. Max was a, a magnificent, majestic cat. Some of you would like to know where Tom will be next. Um, in June, Tom will be at the Applied Precognition Conference in Las Vegas, and that is on the 22nd of June to the 25th. Uh, Justin has done a wonderful promotion video, which you'll find on Tom's YouTube channel. Uh, we are also going to Portland, Oregon on August 5th, and Vancouver, British Columbia on August 12th. And all of that information will be on MBT Events or on MBT Events Facebook, so please have a look for that. Um, today we'll begin with the questions from those of you present here today, and let's start with the newest member of our fireside chat, Benny, if you'd like to ask your question. All right, thank you, Donna, and hello everyone, and Tom, it's nice to meet you. My first question is the consciousness count, is what I thought of it. So what initiates or eliminates a unit of consciousness? Um, let's talk about what initiates one. Where do they come from? How does, how does they get made? Well, at this point, I would think that the larger conscious system, if they needed a new individuated unit of consciousness, um, then they would simply take something that was probably pretty close to the average a, uh, you know, we are, we as individual units of consciousness, we are memory, we're processing, um, we have uh, free will, we are pieces of a information system, of a digital information system. So we are this little chunk of digital information system, if you will, since the larger conscious system is also a digital information system. And in digital information systems, it's real easy to, to copy and paste, duplicate. Those things are almost trivial. So my thought would be it would take um, something that was pretty close to the average, the typical kind of uh, uh, individuated unit of consciousness and just make another copy. Now that average template, if you will, kind of a template for uh, IUOCs, that would represent uh, roughly in around an average level. That template probably doesn't represent any particular one 
individuated unit of consciousness. It's just the kind of the average and the summation around all of them. And then you start with that and have experiences and grow and change. And as soon as you start making free will choices, you start to become unique because nobody will make the same series of choices that anybody else makes. So then you become a unique entity. And the longer you are evolving, making free will choices, the more unique you will become. So that would be my idea of, you know, how, how would you make an individuated unit of consciousness? Now, what about in the beginning when maybe there wasn't anything to copy uh, like that? Well, at that point, uh, we had a, a, a individuated unit of consciousness that was just one monolithic thing. And it realized that it needed interaction with other individuated units of consciousness in order to find more novelty, more uh, opportunities, um, a bigger decision space, more choices that could be made in this interaction and can be made just monolithic. So at that point, it just took some of its memory, some of its processing, you know, some of its intent and put that in a, in, in computer speak, we would say in a partition, just a little subset of itself, if you will, that's kind of walled off from other parts of itself. And then that was probably the first individuated unit of consciousness that was there besides the monolithic whole. And then it could do that again and again and again. So we are pieces of the system, which means we are just memory, processing, uh, purpose, that sort of thing. And it's really easy to make more. So that's initially where they come from. Um, now, where do they, you know, how do, how do they go away? Well, in general, they don't go away because once you start something like that, it has potential. It has potential to evolve. And as long as it has potential to evolve in a positive way by lowering its entropy, as long as it has that potential, even if it's not very good at it, but it still has the potential to do that, then you would let it go. You would let it keep working on its process uh, as long as it had potential. Now, theoretically, if some individuated unit of consciousness no longer had any potential to grow up, and I can't imagine what that would be, you know, but let's just theoretically look at all the possibilities. If that were a possibility and there just wasn't any potential left to grow up, then it would be easy enough just to you know, delete it, if you will, take those uh, dysfunctional bits and recycle them into the system to use them somewhere else. So, but I don't think that anybody should worry about being deleted because I just talk about that as a theoretical possibility of something the system could do if it had useless bits that just weren't contributing to the process of, of evolution. Uh, most any individuated unit of consciousness, even if it is very negative, even if it has sunk very low, still has the potential to turn around and go the other way. So you wouldn't um, uh, you know, delete things that you didn't like. That wouldn't exactly be a free will game. You know, That's like, well, you have free will as long as you make the choices I'd like you to make. That's not free will. You have to allow entities to de-evolve as well as evolve um, to the negative side can develop as well as the positive side can develop. That's just kind of letting the whole thing go as it goes. But even if you're on the negative side, you still have potential to turn around and grow up. And the many things on the negative side have turned around and grown up. So it's not like that doesn't happen. 
that that does happen. So there's very, very uh, unlikely, very little possibility that any individuated unit of consciousness just gets deleted. Okay, now there are individuated units of consciousness that uh, are logged on to a uh, uh, virtual reality like ours that are kind of on the fast track trying to evolve with, with this virtual reality to experience in. And there are those who have never logged on to this kind of a, of a uh, physical reality, quote unquote, virtual reality. So all individual individual units of consciousness aren't exactly having the same experience set or even similar experience sets. Some are involved like we are here and others are involved like we are, but in other, you know, physical reality systems and others have never been in that kind of a tight reality system. They've only worked outside of that. So you have individuated units of consciousness that have all different sorts of experience sets and all different capacities for growing up, all different uh, amounts of decision space. So you can have an individual unit of consciousness that may be the consciousness for a, you know, for a dog or a horse or a pig or a cat or even a bumblebee. And then you have some that, uh, uh, you know, are in like us, you know, that are in the human form that we're familiar with in this particular virtual reality. Um, so, there's all sorts, all kinds, at all levels, all kind of struggling to evolve the quality of their consciousness. Um, and uh, all of them kind of started in the same way. If, if you needed a new player in the dog realm, you know, you'd take some average kind of canine, you know, uh, IUOC and make another one. So that's what you do. Now, what about on the other side of your question? What if you have too many? What if you have a lot of realities? Let's say this reality. What if this physical reality one day gets to the point that it all just uh, disappears? The sun explodes. You know, the uh, you know the reality turns to hydrogen gas and elementary particles. Well, now there aren't any more seats in this particular virtual reality. So all the consciences that we're working here, you know, what do they do? Where do they go? So what if you have an excess? Well, for one, that's very unlikely to happen because this is a virtual reality. The virtual reality is controlled by the system, by the larger conscious system. So it can, if you like, by cheating a little bit, you know, can arrange not to have those kind of cataclysmic things happen. Or they can create another virtual reality with a lot more seats, if you will, for individual units of conscious to go play in another virtual reality. That's another, that's another copy and paste, if you will. So we never really run out of seats. We never have too many. Uh, sometimes we could have too few if you had a system going that uh, the, the computer itself had to play most of the, most of the um, IUOCs there. Mm -hmm. It would still want uh, maybe some more IUOCs to, to take seats in that particular virtual reality. So it's something flexible enough that the system can control it either way. Uh, you know, whether the population goes up or down, uh, it all can stay pretty well optimized for what the larger constant system's needs are. That's the flexibility that's in a digital system. All right. That, that explains that to me. I appreciate that answer. The second question is what I called fantasy. And I wanted to know 
if fantasizing about another person affected their physical or their conscious being? And how does it affect mine? Okay. Um, fantasizing, let's just call that daydreams, if you will. Um, day, daydreams are very much like night dreams in that sense. It's you interacting, making choices in a reality frame other than this virtual reality. You're making choices someplace else. And any place where you make choices, be it in this reality frame we're in now or in a daydream or in a night dream, those choices will help you evolve or de-evolve. Okay, so that would answer how does it affect you? It affects you the same way of making choices here. Okay, you, uh, by the quality of those choices, whether they're you know, self-focused, uh, whether they're you know, about yourself, about other, whatever they're about, then those choices will help you evolve or de-evolve just like any choices anywhere. So it does affect you day, night, out of body, wherever you are making choices. That is, those are all valid choices made by your consciousness and it helps that consciousness evolve or de-evolve. Now, what effect might it have on the other person? Well, the other person will get that information if you are thinking about them. So in this daydream, if you are thinking about them, if you are sending information to them, if you're talking to them, if you're interacting with them, then they will get that. Now, they don't have to necessarily accept it. They can turn that channel off if it's annoying to them or upsetting or whatever. They don't like it. They can turn that channel off or they can just ignore it. Let it run in the background without paying much attention to it. Or they can turn that channel on and actually indeed receive it in such a way that it's, you know, very, uh, very real to them at the time. Or they may just accept it as like their own intuition. They just get a feeling about it, but don't really get anything, you know, from the intellect that they could work on. All of those are possibilities. Now, if they really are negative toward what you're sending toward them, they will probably just reject it or they'll, they will uh, ignore it or it will make them feel uh, uncomfortable and they will be a little more distant and uncomfortable towards you because of that. So they will actually react some too. So the next time you actually see them in this physical quote unquote reality, they may be a little more standoffish or a little more close, or a little more whatever, because of the things that you sent to them. So yes, that does that does work all those ways. So, but there's nothing guaranteed that they wouldn't just shut it out or, you know, connect to it. It it depends. Now, let's say you want to talk to them in a way that is very helpful to them. It's about them. It's not about you. You want to talk to them in a way that you want to say things or give them information. And it's not at all about you and your needs, your wants, your desires. It's about trying to be helpful to them. Not tell them what to do, not give them answers, just be helpful to them. Give them support, give them caring, give them love. Uh, maybe help them see other possibilities that they're missing. Uh, you know, give them a hug, that sort of thing. Then it's, it's pretty likely 
that they will receive that. See, there's no reason to shut that out. It's pretty likely they will receive that, open to it, and it will indeed make them feel better. Whether they get that intellectually or only at the intuitive level, they'll probably get it. Depends on the relationship that you have with them. So it's what happens and who listens and, and who hears what and who it affects has a lot to do with the intents and the attitudes of the people involved. So it's not a pat answer uh, all the time. It isn't always the same. Okay. That, that makes sense. Thank you. And, and my my last question, this one I called epic dozing. And I've recently had experiences of being pulled as if I was being pulled on the moments just before falling asleep while in my bed. Uh, mm -hmm. It was similar to my whole body yawning almost like, and whenever I would give into the feeling, it almost pr produced a sensation of resistance. And whenever I tried to resist the feeling, it, it felt like I was also being pulled in, like the opposite of whatever I was trying to do. So I'm asking, have you ever experienced this? And if so, what what the heck is it? Okay. Um there's a lot of similar experiences that people have, um, and this is just fits into that same group. Sometimes people feel like their bodies are, are waving, are fluid, plastic, and the bodies are like flying, you know, flapping up and down, like maybe a, a flag in a strong wind, you know, that, that they're elastic, uh, like, a, like a rubber band that's being stretched and, and flapped. Uh, sometimes people hear noises. Uh, sometimes people feel electric shocks. Um, sometimes they feel all of those things together. Sometimes they feel, uh, pulled or pushed or stretched, which sounds a little bit like what you're, you're feeling. Uh, all of these are your physical systems, your avatar reacting to having all of its input shut off. Yeah, you have an avatar and your avatar is used to having little signals going on you know it's part part of the rule set the rule set says if your avatar touches something you feel it you feel what gets touched or if the avatar you know gets an ice cube dropped in its shirt you know it feels cold you know it feels feels things so the avatar according to the rule set feels things and when all of the when all of the uh, data input basically to the avatar where you're not asking the avatar to do anything. You're giving it no directions whatsoever. You've kind of let go of your running of the avatar, if you will. That means your consciousness is turning inward. It's not outward into the avatar and into your physical environment. Well, that avatar doesn't have any input anymore. And when it doesn't have any input, sometimes it starts to manufacture input. It starts to create input, almost like a servo system that doesn't have a signal. That's kind of technical. I guess if you're an electrical engineer, that would make a lot of sense. But a servo system is a thing that moves, like tries to get into a, a, a particular position. And uh, if it doesn't have any signals to tell it where to go, it often just kind of wobbles around. It kind of randomly, you know, wobbles around whatever null point it happens to be at. And it's searching for signal, basically. So that's part of it. 
The other part of it is that you can take that those feelings and use those as a as like a signpost for the fact that you are letting go of the physical environment. That's a good sign. If you had a grip of the physical environment, if you were processing that data from all your senses, you wouldn't be feeling those things. The reason you're feeling them is you're letting all that data go. You're no longer processing your sense data coming from your avatar, from your avatar's nervous system. See, digital nervous system, right? Digital avatar. So we're not talking about real things there. We're talking about digital, virtual things. So uh, that's a good sign. And if you look at it as a, as a good sign, oh, that's good. I'm letting go. I'm no longer attached to the physical world. And just try to let it go however it goes. In other words, let it do whatever it does. You don't have to, you don't have to uh, make it stop or make it get stronger, either one. Just let it be. And it may get more and more violent, more and more intrusive, uh, just basically to test whether or not you can just ignore it and let it go. So I'd say ignore it. Be aware of it. Think of it positively. It means you've let go of your physical environment, which is what you're trying to do in that state, and just let it do whatever it does. And if it gets violent, if it starts to uh, kind of get in your face, if you will, and get hard to ignore, well, just let it be. Kind of relax and let it do whatever it does. It can speed up. It can slow down and get more intense or less intense. But uh, if you have a fear reaction to it, like, what is that? What's going on with my body? Uh, something horrible happening to me. You know, what's that noise I'm hearing? Is my body going to be ripped to shreds in all this vibration? If you get into that sort of fear thing, then that means you're probably not ready and you need to relax and let go of some more fear. Uh, your fear is getting in the way of your process. So sometimes the system will use those feelings and make them very strong just to see whether or not your fear is going to grab hold and you know kind of take over if it does then you're really not quite ready you know to uh, go much farther than that so it's 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 all of those it's all of those things uh, a good a good omen if you will and just let it go if it gets violent then ride it like you're riding a bucking horse you know you just hang on and let it do whatever it does it's not you know not in your control just let it let it go. Eventually, those things will simmer down and and get calmer, and often they'll just go away when you don't need to notice them anymore. When you don't need a sign that you've let go of the physical, and you don't need to be tested about your fear, and you don't need those sorts of things happening to you, then it kind of diminishes and goes away, and you don't experience it anymore. But for people that are initially on the path. Most people have some sort of vibration or stretching or flapping or noise or electrical shock or some kind of thing early on. So it's normal enough. Just ignore it and let it do whatever it does. If it gets kind of rough, then just hang with it until it, until you tame it. Okay. Um, well, thank you, Tom. Those are all of my questions. Thank you for joining us. Okay. Fawad, if you would like to ask your question, you're next. 
Hey, Tom. Hello, Fred. Good to see you again. Yeah, it was really such a great moment to meet you. Um, yeah, my question is, um, it, 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 it's based on a discussion that I had with a consciousness researcher. Um, he, I just ex I tried to explain to him that um, your theory that uh, the larger consciousness system is um, evolving towards love to to lower the entropy and and he said no that's not right it's um, moving towards freedom so my question was what do you think about the topic that consciousness is evolving towards freedom is freedom similar to love in some ways regarding the larger consciousness system if the larger consciousness system reached the lowest entropy level by becoming love, did we as individual individual units of consciousness also reach freedom? Yes. It, those two things are similar. The concept of lowering entropy uh, you know, covers both of those ideas, but they go together. When you are a low entropy consciousness, you have more choices, you have a larger decision space, you live in a larger reality, and having a larger decision space can be said as you are free, you have the free will, you have the freedom to do a lot more. You have constraints have been removed, and you have the freedom, much more freedom to be, to do, to think, to experience than you ever had before. So, yes, those two things go together. Um, you know, when you talk about freedom, you'd have to ask, you know, freedom to do what? Well, I think the answer would be basically freedom. You're talking about free will, the ability to choose. And that would be, you know, that to me is, is uh, freedom. Otherwise, the question would be, you know, freedom to do what? Well, all we do is make choices. So it's freedom of choice. Freedom of choice is something that expands as you lower your entropy because you get a larger and larger decision space, which gives you more free will to freely choose among a much larger set of possibilities. So, yes, the two things are pretty similar. Um, freedom, to me, wouldn't be as good a word to use because it means a lot of different things to different people. You know, um, Sometimes, you know, well, even free will can do that, too. You know, sometimes people look at free will and they say free will must be the freedom to have anything you want. Well, that's not free will. You know, that's having a, a genie with unlimited wishes. That's different than free will. Free will is the ability to make choices amongst the available options that you have. That's all free will is. So if you talked about freedom, some people might say, oh, freedom is, you know, never having to do anything you don't want to do. You know, well, that's not necessarily true. Sometimes in the growing up, you have to do things that you don't want to do. That's the process toward growing up. Uh, eventually, you do learn to to uh, enjoy the things that are that are low entropy, but not necessarily all your decisions are like that. Particularly, when you're making decisions about other, not about you. So the growing up process sometimes requires you to do things you don't want to do. So you know, the word freedom and, and free will can kind of be looked at from different angles that make it not fit so well, but I'd say there's no real conflict between those two 
ideas that you're growing up toward more freedom or growing up toward lower entropy or growing up toward becoming love they all uh they all can be interpreted as being about the same thing um if i talk about freedom and and um yeah we're regarding to the tall text you you have a, i'm sure you know the tall text like the the, the movement of carlos castaneda and stuff like this, they, they, they try to reach the, uh, a level of freedom where they're so absolutely free that their consciousness will, like, like I, I don't know if I get the point, but like burned, that you really don't need to come back anywhere at any time. Just, just um, yeah, be, be free of being an, an, an individual, an I, you, or C. Yeah, no, see, I don't support that. Uh, some of the Buddhists have a similar thing where you evolve, you become uh, enlightened, and then you get to go away and never come back and never interact, and you, you join and become one with the Godhead, or you just kind of float on your cloud and play your harp to eternity or whatever. You know, we have this in a lot of philosophies, and that I would see differently. Uh, when you grow up to become love, it's not about you being love and love is about other. So you don't get to the point that you can never be of any help to other. You can always be helpful. There's always something you have to give. So if your philosophy is more self-centered in that it's really all about me, I'm going to get uh, you know enlightened and then I'm going to get out of this uh, awful environment and I'm going to do things that I like and my way and so on. Well, that's all just very self-centered. To me, that's just ego talking. That's ego and, and fear. The fear being that I'll have to live in this hell hole forever, you know, this terrible place where I have all this pain and misery, you know, and that's the fear. And the solution to that is to believe that uh, you can somehow just escape and never have to interact with anything that isn't nice. Well, that, if you're going to do that, that means going off and becoming a hermit, I suspect, and uh, never being very useful to anybody. Because when you interact with real people, you're interacting with fear. You're interacting with beliefs. You're interacting with all of that stuff that's unpleasant because that's the way real people are. They're full of that stuff. And if you're going to be helpful to them, then you need to deal with that. So, no, I disagree with that. If freedom means, you know, I'm just free to have a good time and I don't need to help anybody do anything. You know, it's all about me. I'm free. I'm happy. I'm set. I'm evolved. I'm back to the Godhead. I don't uh, have any more responsibility, no more issues. I'm just done. That to me is people that are full of ego and very hopeful that they will somehow end all the misery and pain that they're now suffering. They want to get free of that. Well, that tells me if if your focus is getting free of your pain and agony, that's ego. That's about you. That's self-centered. So it's different than that. Although there are a lot of philosophies that have that as an end goal, and I think they have that because that's what they tell their people that uh, you know that are that are members of that. That's the that's the come on, you know join us, do our thing, eventually you'll be free. You won't have to do anything that, uh, you know, that is uh, difficult anymore. And that helps the membership then 
gives them some encouragement. But the fact is, if you move toward love, even though you have to deal with helping people who are full of fear, it's a lovely thing to do. That doesn't make you unhappy. That isn't painful. That isn't a problem. That's a good thing. That gives you energy. That makes you feel good. You're contributing. You're being helpful. And that's what lights your light. That's what, you know, makes you feel good and happy. So the very process of being helpful to others and being involved and being connected to the whole system and to what's going on and to other people's needs, that's what makes you happy. So you are happy. You are full of joy, you see. But it's not because you've dropped out, because you've gotten perfect and now dropped out. It's because you've become love and you've plugged in. You're very helpful. So there's just two different ways of of looking at that. And the idea of just dropping out, making you happy, dropping out will never make you happy. What makes you happy is contributing, being a part of the solution, uh, giving, caring. That's what makes you happy. If what makes you happy is getting what you want, then you're not evolving. You know, you're full of ego. So that's kind of my comment on 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 uh, that part. It's a common thing. I think almost all the major religions have a have a part to them where you get to escape. You know, that's the whole point is that you work on this and then you escape. And they don't really define what escape is, but somehow you get to escape. Well, that's the ego having a, a very big need to escape. That's the fear of of having to continue with the with the misery and the pain and the, and the heartache and the rest of it that's down here because you have fear and ego and belief. So the way to deal with that fear, ego, and belief isn't to escape it, but to overcome it, to get rid of it. And then you're full of joy and happiness and peace and everything's good, but you're also engaged with other people. You haven't gotten out at all. You've just become more useful, more helpful. And that makes you happy. That gives you freedom. That you're doing exactly what you want to do. Oh, thanks. That's 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 a long way for me, I guess. But I'm so happy that I met you, and to be a part of that MBT movement is just like being in a movie. That's really beautiful. Thanks. You're welcome. All right, TJ, you're next with your question. Thank you. Sure. How are you doing, everyone? How are you doing? Good to cross paths again, Tom. Yeah, good to see um, you, TJ. So um, I listened to this lecture years ago, and then I listened to it a couple times again more recently about how our different cultures are almost like different operating systems that humans are using to interface with their environment and with each other. And the person talked about how traveling globally to all these different countries all the time made it apparent to him that he had to change his operating system quite frequently. And seeing how you just finished your world tour, I figure it would be kind of relevant to ask you uh, um, my first question here. Is, did you gain any insight that you can share with us about how all of our different cultures are pretty much like different operating systems that each support their own unique cocktail of social, mental, and and religious software that are all being run and hosted on Earth, you know, and, and Mother Nature, kind of how all that ties together. Yep. You know, uh, of course, what you're talking about is the, is the bigger picture that you gain with 
greater experience. So people who travel a lot, particularly if we go back two or 300 years when travel was very difficult and most people didn't travel very much because it was on a horse or on their feet. So you, people didn't get around too much and getting on a boat was very expensive and a little risky. So people realized that those who did travel had a bigger picture, understood things at a higher level. They were more sophisticated, if you will, not so provincial. Um, and that's true. The more experience you have, the broader experience you have, then the bigger picture you have, which helps you understand things in a much broader context. So that's all very good. So we should we should want diverse and wide experiences, a lot of different ways that people think and the way they do things. And you're, you're also correct that um, everybody's culture is a, is a different set of, of structures that allow them to interface with the reality that they find. The thing that impressed me on this trip, having gone to three or four places in the East, um, you know, of course, Europe, I've been to Europe multiple times, many times, um, <clears throat> places where the populations were small, relatively small, like New Zealand, where we don't have countries of, you know, 100 million people or 300 million people or something like that. It's a much smaller uh, group because of it's a small island. Uh, Japan would be another one of those. Even England, I guess, would be one of those. But uh, you find differences amongst uh, each of these cultures. They have their own way of seeing the world. They have their own mindset of what reality is like. They kind of have a collective reality, if you will, that they're sharing. And these collective realities are different from place to place. But the thing that impressed me most was how similar they were. All over this planet, people pretty much are the same. They have different ways of expressing things because they have different environments that accentuate this thing rather than that thing. But the, the, uh, the, the things that are similar is a much larger set than the things that are different. So that was, a, that was a, uh, one thing. You know, you go to a big city, say, and whether it's Tokyo or New York or Los Angeles or Chicago or London, you know, or Paris, it doesn't matter that much. They look pretty much the same. You go out into the countryside and you've got uh, fields and hills and, you know, fences and grass and all of that, and they look pretty much the same. You know, most of the places I went uh, could have been, I could have located that same kind of geography and that same sort of situation someplace, you know, in, in the U.S. or someplace in Europe. And yet I was in Asia. There's a lot of similarities everywhere. And the people are struggling everywhere. They're full of ego and fear and beliefs everywhere. They're trying very hard to grow up, uh, particularly the people I meet when I'm on these tours, because those are the people that come to my workshops. The people who have no interest in growing up really don't have much interest in my workshops either. So the people I meet tend to be people who are who are on a path of, of growth 
and and trying to understand and change themselves and, and become love. So I found that that the similarities were much more more uh, stark and and much more uh, obvious than any differences. The differences were all more trivial. So yes, different cultures, different places, but it's the same game being played everywhere, and uh, nobody's really particularly ahead or behind, you know, in playing that game. They're all just playing it slightly differently with a different set of uh, attitudes. But yeah, it was uh, it was really nice to to see the you know the variety of the way people solve problems like uh, a traffic problem in uh, bali or in uh, in uh, uh, india is not at all solved like a traffic problem in germany or in the united states you know in germany or in, in europe in general well i should take that back not in europe in general but in germany at least and in the us we have rules about traffic. We have lights that go from red to green to orange and everybody obeys them. And we have stop signs and we have lanes that are marked out and lanes with yellow lines you don't cross and white lines that are dotted that you do, et cetera, et cetera. In, uh, in India, in New Delhi, it's not like that. You know, uh, it's a free-for-all. You can have five highways all come to a point at the same place in a road and there are no lights, there's no stop signs, there's no yields, there's nothing. Everybody just tries to get from where they are to where they want to go as best they can, jumping into little spaces that are maybe uh, 10 or 15 cubic feet at a time. You know, and as a little hole opens up near you, you jump in it and wait for the next little hole to open up near you and so on. And it all works. It all works. They all get through. Everything does fine. There aren't any accidents for the most part. And... Uh, the whole thing flows. Now, which way is more efficient? I don't know. Some ways I think the free-for-all is actually more efficient. In other ways, I think the, the, the regulation has, uh, has value too. But I found those kinds of things interesting, which were just kind of cultural, uh, cultural attitudes toward rules. Some places, there's the, there, the, the culture's full of rules. There's a rule for everything. Other places, very, very few rules. Everybody just kind of gets around, gets along and looks out for each other. And they kind of share the road in a very haphazard way, not an orderly way. So yeah, very fascinating that you have those kinds of things going on, but uh, that has more to do with the, with the uh, kind of the way those individuals see reality, the, the order, the, what should we call it? The top down ordering of things, the, um, what do we call that? Uh, centralized order. You know, the central command ideas uh, aren't natural. They're more of a bottoms up people. You know, you don't have a central command that orders your life and tells you what to do and when to do it. Everybody just does whatever they want and they try to get along with each other as best they can. It's just a different way of, of looking at reality. It was a lot of fun. I had a good time on my, on my trip and seeing the different people in different places. But the similarity, I think, is what stood out to me, not the differences. Cool. My uh, my second question kind of uh, involves some of the same level of logic as my first one. But um, to me, it almost seems like understanding the MBT model of reality can assist you in shifting your your perspective outside that of 
your local area that you grew up in without really having to travel when you have analogies like this. Um, and it's almost like the more we understand and the more we grow up, we get to work with heavier and heavier levels of like the, the operating system and, and more choices are aware to you are, and more choices become, um, become available to you as you do this growing up. And I just wanted to get your point of view on it. Is that the best thing that we can do to upgrade ourselves all the time is just be working on these little day in day out tasks of, of growing up? Yes. That's the way it happens. One little, one little step at a time. Every once in a while, you'll get a big aha moment and take a big step all at once where you, you know, it's a rather dramatic change in the way you see the world, but that's pretty rare for most people. Mostly it's just a, a thousands and thousands of little steps all along the way that all add up to growth. And you don't see it as you're in it and doing it. You don't notice day to day that you're growing up any. It seems like you always are the same. But if you look back, you see, if you look back, who was I a decade ago? You know, what did I think? How did I feel? What was my sense of the world? You know, how big a picture did I have a decade ago? And most of the people here, if they think that, they'll think, hey, they've come a pretty long way in a decade. They're very different than they were 10 years ago. They see things very differently, you see, but they didn't notice it as they were growing up. But you can notice it looking back. That's because it's thousands and thousands of little changes that none of which uh, are big aha moments. That's typically the way it is. Yes. And as you grow up, your reality gets bigger <coughs> as it gets bigger. Your decision space gets bigger, and instead of seeing things provincially, you see things uh, at a, uh, I guess what's called a more sophisticated or a, or a more uh, uh, big picture level, and that is a good thing. That makes you, uh, you know, you you uh, appreciate diversity more. Uh, it's not. That my way is the right way. You see, there's lots of ways that are the right way. The right way is the thing that helps you evolve, whatever that is. It's a slow process. But if you have an intent to grow up, you will make that progress. That intent will carry you forward. Thanks, Tom. All right. Sorry for that pause there. The next question comes from Mike Pinilla and... He's not here today, so I'll read the question for him. Tom, your background is in science, which we all know comes with its own dogmas, especially when famous or influential names have careers on the line. At this level, the science can seem to be religious, and the open mind seems to be more of a mind trapped in belief. As you began to become more confidently aware of my big toe, my guess is that you may have had some sort of internal friction or conflict in presenting your ideas to the world openly. Can you share with us a little about that process, if indeed it happened, and how you dealt with and overcame it? Finally, at what point did you make the decision to go for it and give the world my okay, Donna seems to have frozen, but I think uh, at least she did in my in my feed anyway. But I can go ahead and answer the question. I think she was about done. Um, I didn't really have a... Um, I didn't really have a problem with being, you know, outside of mainstream science. 
I've never really felt like I've been inside a mainstream anything as far back as I can remember. I suspect even as a, you know, as a three or four year old, I probably was out in the margin as far as uh, my view of the world stayed that way ever since. I pretty much just went to wherever, you know, the, you know, my, my research or, or my, my uh, experimentation took me. And as I saw things that were uh, kind of outside of what science would like, like when I first realized that uh, meditation state could help me write better code, could help debug code, I didn't feel like I was somehow crossing some big magical boundary that uh, was going into, you know, la-la land. It just, it was there. It was real. I saw it happening. It worked. And as far as I was concerned after that, it was something to study. It was something to learn about. And if other people didn't have that experience, well, you know, they'd have to work on their own experience. That's the way life works. You have to work out of what you get. Before I had that experience, you know, I wasn't aware of all that other reality being out there either. And then when I did have that experience, I was aware of it. I didn't particularly feel the need to convince other people or not. Uh, I just wanted to understand it. So I never really came to a point, Mike, where I felt conflicted between being a scientist and studying consciousness. I was doing two things that at the time did not meet. They didn't have any connection to them. They were like separate things, but they were all part of this, my experience in this reality. And I knew that they all should meet someplace. They should all be connected because I was, I was one thing. I was experiencing them all. So there's some connection there. There was some, some understanding that could bridge that gap. There had to be. Otherwise, how could I be experiencing both sets, the scientific set and the consciousness set? So I just wanted to find out what that bridge was. So I never really had a, a, a problem with science. And then as I was writing down my big toe, uh, I really didn't have a problem with what other scientists thought of it. If any other scientists uh, read it or not, you know, it was my truth, my experience, uh, what seemed to make sense to me. And I put it out there in case it would be useful to anybody else. And if it was, it was, and if it wasn't, it wasn't, and either way, that was okay with me. So that's kind of how I felt about it. I've never um, had a conflict with being a scientist and being, uh, you know, a conscious researcher or with being a scientist and being a mystic, you know, if you want to put it that way, you know, with going out of body and, and uh, getting data from non-physical databases and the rest of that. It's just... You know, I convince myself that it's real by my own experiments. And after that, I'm good with it. You know, I can discuss that with anybody, you know, at any time in any way. And if I think they're actually listening and getting something out of it, I'd continue that discussion. If I think they're not, then I keep my mouth shut. So it's that kind of a attitude that I've had. Uh, it's never been a conflict. It's, uh, you know, I, I don't put a lot of things in the one at the one or zero of probability. There's not a lot that I say is impossible and, you know, will never happen and never exist. And there's not a lot that I say I'm absolutely perfectly, you know, this is the truth. I don't do that with much of anything. It's all, everything is always tentative. It's always the, the best understanding, the best picture, the best model that I have at the present time, 
based on my experience up to the present time. So I don't really have anything to defend either. It just is what it is. So if you don't have anything to defend, then it's you don't get defensive. So it's not a belief. You see, once you get into beliefs, now you have something to defend. But if it's not a belief, then it's there's no defense necessary. So I never had that problem, never had that struggle, and uh, still don't. So it is what it is, and I'm good with it. However, however other people take it, that's not my problem. <laughs> that's that's their decision to make. And however they make that decision doesn't say anything about me. It says something about them. Okay, since we lost Donna, I'm not sure when she will be back. Um, we've just found out that Christian actually has a question which he hasn't posted. So Christian, just, just go ahead with your question. Okay, Tom. Um, my question is about the operation manual for avatars. So for every new device, um, I thought I also got an operation manual and they're usually safety instructions to prevent any damage or harm. So when we log on to a new avatar, was there also um, operation manual for PMR life attached? Wouldn't it be useful to have such a manual? Also, I have to admit my manuals usually get dust on the shelf, but sometimes in very special questions, I, I will consult it. Or do we have to create our own manual? Maybe your big toe is a sort of manual. And if there is a manual, so if so, where is it? Yeah, well, the reason that we don't come with a lot of information already on what's going on, like why we're here, you know, we don't come with an understanding that we're here to grow up and become love. We have to figure that out. We don't come with an understanding that this is a virtual reality. We have to figure that out. We don't have an operator's manual for one reason, uh, for one main reason, and that is that if we did, that would be intellectual. That would be an intellectual process. All right, You would have an intellectual uh, idea of where you were going and what you were doing. But that's not where growth comes from. Growth doesn't come from an intellectual process. Growth comes out of the being level. You have to, growing up means changing yourself at the being level, not intellectually understanding, you know, what's going on. You have to be differently, not understand more. There's a, there's a difference there. And once you get into the intellect, once you have a, an intellectual process, like you would in reading a, a user's manual, the intellect is where all that ego and belief uh, you know, is. So that process now starts getting corrupted, starts getting interpreted in terms of that belief and in terms of that ego. So, okay, you read the manual, but you interpret the manual. And that manual will be interpreted in terms of your, of your beliefs, in terms of your ego, in terms of your fear. And what that does is, you know, it's not helpful to you. It's not really all that helpful to give you intellectual information that then filters through your egos and belief. That's why a lot of people uh, have problems communicating with their guides, if you will, or else just say with the larger consciousness system. They have difficulty creating an interface with the larger consciousness system because what they're looking for is conversation. What they're looking for is a, you know, is a sentence. 
is a you know is is data coming to them that they can process with their intellect because that's what they're used to and the system doesn't want to talk to them that way the system doesn't want to engage their intellect the system wants them to change who they are at the being level and interacting with you know and and uh, connecting to their inter- intellect generally doesn't accomplish that in fact it often does just the opposite they start to create new beliefs their ego starts to puff up on their new connection to the bigger picture uh they have beliefs now about exactly you know what's going on and who they're talking to and oh that was the angel gabriel and he is you know part of the seventh level of the 32nd you know precinct of such and such and they start building all this stuff about you know their non-physical experience and so on and it just isn't helpful in the long run all that stuff is in the intellect it has nothing to do with changing who you are at the being level so the system doesn't want to talk to you it wants to deal with you at the intuitive level and most people don't want to deal at the intuitive level because they're not aware of it they don't trust it it's not reliable they want a conversation and that's a stalemate for a lot of people trying to connect to the larger consciousness system they want it to go through the intellect because that's how they define their reality is through their intellect and the system doesn't want to get mired down in all that belief and ego that's in the intellect doesn't want whatever it wants to say to be filtered through all that belief and and ego so that's the same reason we don't have a user's manual that's that's why when we come here as a free will awareness unit we just come with the quality of the IUOC that we are just the quality none of the intellectual stuff we have to figure that out on our own but you see it's not the figuring it out that's the big deal you can figure out a lot of things you can you can read my book and 100 other books and get some sense of how the larger reality works but if it's all in your intellect it doesn't do you any good you feel very learned and you feel like ah oh, i've got a good understanding and i have a big perspective on how everything works but it's not really all that helpful you say so figuring it out isn't really the point the point is growing up now figuring it out can help you grow up if it focuses you on changing yourself at the being level but if figuring it out doesn't focus you on changing yourself at the being level then it's just not helpful matter of fact it gets in the way because it helps you form new things you know new clogs of ego and new belief systems you know all you have to do is is uh, kind of uh explore around the new age community and you'll find huge number of belief systems uh that have to do with the larger reality and none of them are particularly useful in the sense that they don't help you grow up they help you understand intellectually but they're all have been filtered through the ego and the beliefs of the people that you know that do them so that's that's why uh you don't get a user's manual because it would be an intellectual um uh, plus up it'd be an intellectual thing that you'd have that really isn't going to be very helpful in doing what you have to do and is most likely just to get in the way of what it is you have to do that's why in your dream reality you only interact in a dream reality from your being level 
You see, you don't have your intellect engaged in a dream reality. If you do, it's called a lucid dream. Now your intellect's engaged in the lucid dream. You get rid of that intellect, it's just a regular dream. And in a regular dream, all the choices you make are you. They're right out of your being level. That's the way you really are. That stuff you do in your dreams, that's what you do, you know, from the core of you. And that's why that dream reality is so useful because it's it's real. It is the real you. You're not, uh, there's no way for you to game the system. It's not a matter of now, okay, which answer is the right answer? Oh, I this would be a better answer, so I'll do that. You see, that's gaming the system. That's not being a way. That's trying to figure out which way should I act like I am. You see, that's different than than being. So that's why the system isn't really big on giving you intellectual information because it doesn't help. Okay, thank you, Tom. Very clear. Um, I have a second question about um, creativity in selecting options. So if I make a choice uh, or I have to make a choice and I'm lucky, I'm aware maybe of five different options or out of 100 options and make it be a figure out what is the best option. Is it possible that I could come up with option number 101, um, which turns out is even better? And the LCS haven't thought about that option. So I know that I'm very predictable. Um, could I come up with something completely new, something which even surprised the LCS and which hasn't been even calculated in the probable future database yet? Could I uh, add something completely new? Um, well, new for you. It would be hard to get something that the system did not see as an option because the system computes all the possibilities. You know, all the significant possibilities get computed, even the ones that are one in a million or one in 10 million. They're all there. They're all computed just as a matter of these are the possible things that could happen. Okay, so the system probably is not going to be caught by surprise as far as you do something that is not in their list of possibilities. I think their list of possibilities is pretty complete, but you can surprise the system by doing something unexpected for you, where you do something that is not uh, in line with all the other choices you've made. And often people will do that when they have these major aha moments. They have a history that would predict that, you know, they're going to react this way to that stimulus, but now suddenly things fall into place not just in their intellect, but they understand the world better now. They've changed. They're a different person. Now they'll make a whole set of different choices that all the history will predict the wrong choices because they're not the same person they were in that history, you see. So now you almost have to start over with a new history of that person because they're a different person. And that does happen all the time with people as they grow up and as they change, they don't make the same choices they used to. And for a while, right after that, it's a little hard to predict because often when we grow up, it's not just a sudden, um, you know, square wave kind of function. Like now you you were here, now you're there, and you just always stay there once you go there. Often what happens is we get a bigger picture, so we change in a way we see things, and then we kind of drift back to the way it was. And then we say, no, this doesn't feel right anymore. And then we move back up to the new idea, 
and then we'll drift back. And we do this up and back, you know, dozens and dozens of times, spending more time up and less time back. And until eventually we're spending almost all of our time up and very little time back. And then we kind of are different, but it's a transition typically between when you get rid of a fear, it hardly ever just cuts off suddenly. Typically that fear will come back and, at times when you're particularly stressed, that fear will come right back up again that you thought you'd gotten rid of, you see. Mm. It, but you just keep going down that path, and pretty soon the probability of you acting on that fear gets to be very, very small. Probably hardly ever goes to zero, but it gets very, very small. So, yes, you can surprise the system. You can do something that is not at all in line with what would be predicted that you might do. Uh, but the system doesn't mind. They just pick that up, and now what you know the the, uh, the the statistics that predict what you'll do next all have to change because you're changing so yes we can do odd things we're unpredictable we have free will although most of us until we change keep making the same choices it's not until we grow up and change that our choices are different so if we're not growing up then we're extremely predictable as we grow up, we get less predictable through that growing process.